The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Good morning. Let's continue with the reading of God's Word. We're in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod, for, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Praise the Lord for his holy word. Let's pray. Father God, these are glorious words. These are lofty words. And um, our hearts may or may not be in a place that's eager for them. Um, and, uh, and my words uh, inevitably will fall short of um, unpacking these in a way that does them justice. And so we ask for the help of your spirit now. We ask that your Holy Spirit would meet us where we're lacking. We ask that he would be our true teacher and that our lives would be changed because of this time together in your word. So help us see the exalted Christ this morning. In his name we pray, amen. So in the middle of the Civil War, the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote the following words. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet their songs repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head, there's no peace on earth, I said. 
For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then rang the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. I've always appreciated those lyrics and their honesty because when we look around, we don't see peace on earth, right? There's no peace in Ukraine. There's no peace on our streets or in our halls of government. There's no peace in our workplaces or in our families. There's no peace in our own troubled hearts. But didn't the angels in Luke chapter 2 and didn't Linus in a Charlie Brown Christmas promise us that Christ coming would bring peace on earth? So is it all just nice sentiments then? Is it all just a holiday pipe dream? No, Longfellow declares, God isn't dead. God doesn't sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. And this morning we're going to fill in some of the why and the how that is true. It doesn't depend generally on Christmas bells, but on what the bells represented, what they were meant to celebrate. So let's start by looking at our passage today in one sentence. If we could put up that slide our passage in one sentence. These verses tell us that we can have unexpected joy, verses one through three, because of release from oppression, verse four, and cessation of war, verse five, due to the birth of an ideal ruler, verse six, whom the Lord has established to bring history to its God-glorifying end, verse seven. So that is a summary of our passage. If I were to say it really, really simply, I'd just say, rejoice because Jesus brings the peace we need. Rejoice because Jesus brings the peace we need. Last Sunday in chapter 7, we saw that way back in 734 BC, King Ahaz's rejection of God's salvation meant that the kingdom and the kingship would be plunged into darkness. And then chapter 8 of Isaiah continues on that same trajectory with details about the Assyrian invasion. And then that chapter ends with this about the, idol the idolatrous people of God. It says, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. When we look at the history of the people of Israel in the decades that followed Isaiah's prophecy, we see how that came to pass. Their land was invaded. They were carried off into exile in Assyria and then Babylon for the southern kingdom. And most of them in subsequent generations just forgot their identity and forgot the knowledge of God. They simply blended in with the peoples. They lived for whatever they could get. They worshipped created things rather than the creator. They slipped into darkness. We see how that happened in history. And if we're honest, we can see it in our own histories as well. Even if you came to Christ as a child, even if you've been walking with him, if you're honest, you can look over the precipice and you can see what he saved you from. The gloom of anguish. A life apart from the transcendent God. A life that's just 
clamoring for scraps of meaning in a world of chaos. That is our human story. So chapter 9 starts with a reversal. It offers us a nevertheless. Verse 1 reads, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. There will be a change in mood, we see. A change from fearful gloom to no more gloom. There will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. Her who is in anguish. Well, remember how uh, the people of God in the book of Isaiah are personified as the daughter of Zion. So that's who the her is. She who is in anguish. It means all of us who belong to God. And here in this section, Isaiah is doing an interesting thing with time. You can see that uh, from verse 1, what is about to be discussed in this section, it was in the future in Isaiah's day. He says, there will be. That's how he introduces all of this. It's futuristic. But then he continues, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has. So do you see what he's doing? The, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, right in the heart of the northern kingdom of Israel. That was being brought into contempt in Isaiah's day. That wasn't past tense. That was present tense, right, as Isaiah was writing. That's the territory that Assyria would utterly conquer. But he speaks about it as if it was past tense. And then he speaks about this latter time as if it was the present time. Now, there's a special name for this mode of speech in the Bible, and it's called the prophetic perfect tense. The prophetic perfect tense. And the idea is that as he looks to the future, the devastation that's brought by Assyria is relegated to the past, and the future then is spoken of as if it has already happened, so as to punctuate the certainty that God will do this. So there is no possibility that these words will not come to pass. And that's helpful to think about. Because we often need to think and live in the prophetic perfect tense, if you know what I mean. We need to see the promised future so certainly, so clearly, that we can speak of it as an already established reality. Because true faith can hold on in darkness, knowing, not just wishing, that light would come. So as the people of God, we have to decide which understanding of our experiences will we live by? Will we live in a simple understanding of our experiences in the darkness, or will we live in the prophetic perfect tense? The darkness is true, and we never want to sugarcoat that or pretend that it's not so devastating, but we also do remember that darkness is not the full or the final truth. So faith has a stubborn perspective, and, and it can see you through the stubborn season, the dark seasons of your life. So if, if you or someone that you love is caught in this spiral of depression, there's simply no replacement for immersing yourself in God's word. And I know from experience that the, those are the very times when it's hardest to get into God's word. It's hard to do much of anything, Right? But if we can have God's words wash over us, it probably won't be a quick fix. But over time and with prayer, the eyes of faith are lifted 
to see and to enjoy the goodness of God in Christ, even if, as you look around to your circumstances, that goodness isn't readily apparent. And a good friend will keep helping the depressed person, reminding them again and again, even when it feels fruitless, of the more certain reality that God has promised, which is far more reliable than the darkness that we see around us right now. Now, in these first verses, he mentions these specific regions. And Isaiah is suggesting that dawn for the people of God is going to break in the very region that was the first to experience God's judgment. These territories were where the Assyrian conquest entered the land, and that's where darkness will first start to disappear. We know, from, um, we know that verses 1 and 2 are fulfilled about 750 years later in the ministry of Jesus because the gospel of Matthew tells us that in chapter 4. It says, And leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So we've got a map, and on that map you can see that Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, is right there in the territory of Zebulun. And then Capernaum, where Jesus really launched his ministry, that's right there in the area of Naphtali. Now, it's no throwaway observation that the light of Jesus came first to an area that was poor and downtrodden, and in the eyes of the religious people, it was dirty. If you remember the disciple Nathaniel, when he, was first, he first hears about Jesus from Philip, he responded, can anything good come from Nazareth? And then later in Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees are talking amongst themselves about what to do with Jesus, and they ridicule Nicodemus, and they say to him, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So we have a Lord who didn't grow up in privilege, who wasn't a cultural insider. He wasn't ashamed to go to despised villages and talk to rough crowds. And so even if your background feels shameful or sketchy in some way in the eyes of others, you can be confident that Jesus is for you and that it's no accident that dawn is coming to you. But if we could look at that map again, why does Isaiah call this region? Uh, on the map there, it, it says East Manasseh. Um, that's what he's referring to as Galilee of the nations. That term isn't really found anywhere else. But we know that in the centuries of, uh, later, when Jesus is ministering in that area, uh, so Naphtali, Zebulun, all that west of the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River, that was primarily occupied by resettled Jews. But the area east of the Jordan, east of the Sea of Galilee, that was mixed and, and maybe even primarily Gentile in population at that time. But Jesus still did a lot of ministry in that area as well. So the mention of Galilee of the nations here, it kind of shows us that the scope of what's going to happen is bigger than just the restoration of Israel. The child, the son who's announced in these verses, will be for all peoples. 
for all peoples. And we see that, don't we, when we read the Gospels. We see it as early as when these, um, these astronomer magician guys, a.k.a. wise men, come from foreign lands to honor the newborn Jesus. Or we see it as late as when Jesus is dying on the cross and it's the Gentile Roman centurion who declares, surely this was the Son of God. So all of this ground where Jesus trod, all of this way near the sea, he, meaning God, has made glorious. It's, it's not something that people brought about by themselves. The darkness was there in the first place as God's judgment for unbelief, and then the lifting of the darkness is God's doing as well. It's his free gift at the perfect time. And that time that's referred to in these verses, it's called the latter time. The latter time. When is the latter time? As you read your Bibles, you'll discover that in the last, the last days or the latter time, it's a reality that started with the first coming of Jesus, and then it continues until his second coming. So the whole church age is viewed as this final movement of history. So verse 1, that's what, what God has done. He has made this area glorious with the coming of Jesus. And then verse 2 ushers us into the experience of people who have that dawn rise upon them. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, we don't live in Galilee, and we didn't see the physical arrival of Jesus, but this is still our story. Walking in darkness, it means living our lives in confusion and chaos, and, and just as in the very beginning, at, the, at, at creation, the first act was, let there be light, so also it is with new creation. The Holy Spirit gives that light of Christ just as much as if we had been there, if we had actually witnessed his miracles and his teachings in Galilee. Jesus appears to us as light into the darkness. And the Apostle Paul puts it this way. This is from 2 Corinthians. He says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. See that, that creation lingo there. Let light shine out of darkness. The same God who did that has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we who are in Christ have been given this gift to be able to perceive all the goodness and wonder of God through Jesus who came to walk in our land of darkness. And as that work of bringing us out of darkness into light unfolds, the nation is multiplied. So the citizens of God's kingdom are increasing exponentially until we see in the end a great multitude that no one could number from all nations, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Instead of division and exile, Isaiah is describing a reunified people of God who are, are rejoicing like those who bring in a great harvest. I don't know if we have anyone here today from an agricultural background, but... Um, you know, there's all this blood, sweat, and tears throughout the whole growing season, and then it all pays off at harvest. I mean, even more so back in, in that day before tractors and such. Um, the joy is like that great harvest, or the joy is compared to 
dividing the spoil after a um, hard-won victory. The fruits of victory are freely distributed. And you know, we see this in the New Testament. The spiritual gifts are described as spoils from our Lord after he put his enemies to open shame. Now remember in prophetic books like Isaiah, what we're, what we're doing, what we're trying to do is paint a picture. That's what the prophet does. He, he describes things in broad strokes. So try to imagine a mural as we're going through this and, and imagine what's, what's appearing there. We're seeing a lot of unexpected light, joy, and hope. But what concretely has changed? Well, these good things have come because a lot of bad things have been taken away. And we see that starting in verse 4. The word for suggests that the rejoicing is because of liberation from enemies. It says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as in the day of Midian. There's two levels of imagery going on here. The first is this language of yoke, burden, staff for shoulder, rod from the oppressor. That's all from Exodus or later scriptures that that refer back to um, the uh, Israel's slavery in Egypt. And we know that in Exodus, it was quite literal slave labor, but there's also a sense in which the people were being freed from the idols of Egypt. And similarly here in Isaiah, the language has physical oppression in view, but there's also very much a spiritual overtone to that bondage. So we see this Exodus imagery, and then there's this language also about Midian, as in the day of Midian, and that's referencing the whole story about Gideon's defeat of Midian in the book of Judges, chapters 6 through 8. And that was a miraculous military victory that came where? In Zebulun and Naphtali. So what will this breaking of oppression as on the day of Midian look like? If you know the story on the day of Midian, God used a hero of unlikely origins to defeat the enslavers of his people. And it wasn't with overwhelming military might, but it was through the power of the spirit that a force of only 300 was used to terrify and confuse and destroy tens of thousands. And our Lord's decisive victory over oppression was like that. He waged war by picking up a cross and dying on it. It was through his broken body that light and deliverance came for we who were trapped in bondage. But what kind of oppression are we talking about when we are interpreting this through Christ? The main focus is on slavery to sin. The people in Jesus' day asked him, we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And then he added, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And the Apostle Paul uses the same imagery. He says, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. So we should pause here and ask, how are you enslaved? How do you need to be freed? Freed from addictions? Freed from the tyranny of fears? Freed from natural tendencies that hurt yourself and hurt the people around you? Freed from a life of thoughtless impulses to pursue one of beautiful intentionality? Jesus broke the yoke of oppression. Will you follow him out of the slave yard? Or will you refuse to trust him 
preferring the continued illusion of self-rule in the realm of slavery over the reality of freedom under his rule. And as we've been seeing in, in the book of Hebrews, the answer to that question isn't just, um, not just what you say, but it depends on how it plays out in your life over time. And if you're settled in the chains of any sin, if you're just, you're just content to be there and you don't want anyone to stir you, well, then Jesus is not your liberator to the extent that this passage describes him. If you're going to refuse his liberation, then I just want you to realize what you're doing. Now, there is a physical component to this liberation from oppression as well. The oppression of sin, we know that it, in a society of sinners, it, it can lead to physical oppression as well. And we see this in places where harsh dictators flourish, where child labor and sweatshops persist, where domination over women and human trafficking occur. The people of Christ, of course, will work with many different strategies to try to end these injustices. And ultimately, when Christ returns, they will be ended completely. But in the meantime, the most powerful tool in our arsenal is actually the good news of liberation. Throughout history, we've seen that God can save oppressors and change them too. And often that happens through the faith of the oppressed. Because when the gospel enters their misery, then a strength and a dignity and a peace rises up that no blows of violence can remove. And then the violent ones are put to shame and disarmed. Well, not only will this sunrise in the land of darkness put an end to oppression, but it will also cause war to cease. Verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This graphic imagery, and it, it, this, it's like a, a bonfire of military equipment. Um, in chapter 2, Brett Llewellyn unpacked um, verses that, that were very similar. Um, says, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now here we can get confused and we can think that, well, like, just like Longfellow's lyrics, this simply isn't happening, right? If there's one constant in the world that we, as we know it, it's warfare, so we would really be sunk if we were determined to interpret this verse without the help of the rest of Scripture. But thankfully, the, the child who is born, the son who is given Jesus himself, tells us in Matthew 24, he promises that actually wars would increase and not decrease in the time before his return. So we have to remember that this, this cessation of warfare is something that would be accomplished in the latter time, and we have to remember that that latter time includes his second coming. But just as with the ending of oppression, the reality of peace is spreading with the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ. Superficially, that it may not look like that, right? Because nations like the U.S. or Russia, we can be identified as Christian, by outsiders, and yet clearly we're the instigator of a fair number of wars. But look deeper than that. Look at the individuals around the world, not who call themselves Christian, but who live as Christians. And if you get them together in one room, what you're going to observe is peace. 
between the Russian Christian and the Ukrainian Christian, between the Arab Christian and the Jewish Christian, American, Chinese, Venezuelan, Iranian. Despite any live political conflicts, all true Christians are knit together with an understanding that they have a higher and a deeper loyalty to a king who has been given all nations and is coming back to reign. So we can see where this this figure in Isaiah 9 is taking us. And it's beautiful. No more burdens or blows, no more tyrants, no more nationalistic saber-rattling and senseless destruction. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Whenever you're frustrated or, or frightened by world events, seriously pray for his return. That's what's modeled for us in scripture. His presence is our greatest hope. Well, next in verse 6, a third use of the word for traces all of these good developments to their root cause. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A child is born. Nothing strange there, but to us, a son is given. First, we should ask, why, why is he somehow for all of us and not just for his mother and father? And given, it, it implies that his child is divinely sent in a unique way. And we see that his shoulders alone are able to bear the weight of governance. And actually, the people's shoulders are released from their burdens, in verse 4, when his shoulders take up the burden of rule in verse 6. But what should we call such a heaven-sent ruler? In the ancient world, names meant something. They involved uh, a glimpse of who that person was and what their character would be. And so what follows here are four compound titles for this given son. Compound names presumably because like single names weren't getting the job done. You can't adequately communicate the dignity and the profundity of this coming one with simple names. So first we see he's called Wonderful Counselor. Now we tend to overuse the word wonderful, right? We, like it's cool or neato. But originally wonderful meant supernatural. It meant beyond what should be true of a human. And counselors in the ancient world, they were the advisors to kings. So uh, we're not just talking about, you know, like a therapist, but we're talking about someone who is making plans that will change empires and formulating plans of action that will not fail. And this gets after the fact that Jesus did set out and he did accomplish the greatest work ever attempted. And that certainly means that he can unravel the problems in your heart or in your relationships or in your church or your world. Now, I've heard some people say sort of in a, in a prideful way, I have Jesus as my counselor, so I don't need to listen to other voices. And I, I hope you can see how silly that is. Like you've got Jesus as your good shepherd, but he still appoints church leaders. You've got Jesus as your king, and yet he still tells us for now to obey the civil authorities that he's appointed. So yeah, you do have Jesus as your wonderful counselor, but you might still need to hear wisdom through others that he sends to put flesh on his counsel. Next, the son is called Mighty God. And and that's an astonishing title if you think about it. This, This king is prophesied and he's called Mighty God. 
Um, but it's a logical title for if, you know, thinking back to the Emmanuel prophecy, God with us. So this wonderful counselor also has unlimited capacity to actually carry out his brilliant plans because he's divine. And he's also called everlasting father. And that might trip you up when you think about, wait, God the son is being called father. It's not saying that God the son is the same as God the father, okay? They are distinct persons, though one in essence. Uh, in some places of scripture, Jesus is actually described as our brother, like an older brother figure. He brings us to the father, and then the father adopts us as his children. And Jesus is counted as the firstborn, as heir of the kingdom, and we are called co-heirs with Christ. And that's why Hebrews 2.17, in talking about our need for a truly human savior, it says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So there's a sense in which he's not ashamed Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. And yet here, he's described as everlasting father. And that's because God the Son is also like a father to us. He's the better Adam. He is the head of a new family of humanity from which all the people of God are spiritually descended. And so as the head of our family, Jesus relates to us in all the ways that a good father would. And he's going to keep doing that in an everlasting manner. He will care for us in that way without end. And I think that title really balances out our, our image of this figure. Uh, he's not just a ruler. He's not just a conqueror. He is a father. He knows us. He's considerate toward our frailties, just as we would be toward our own children. You know, in uh, Isaiah's day, many ancient kings would actually call themselves fathers of the people, but you know, none of them were everlasting. And he's called Prince of Peace. After Jesus' work is done and he's gathered his people together, then he will rule over them. And you might know that the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. It implies a lot more than just the absence of conflict. So it's, it's thicker than our English word for peace. It, it means wholeness. It means health. It means completeness. So hear how one scholar has unpacked this. He writes, The Prince of Peace is himself the whole man, the perfectly integrated, rounded personality, at one with God and humankind. But also, as a prince, these are the very benefits that he administers to his people. And that is very good news to me because... I can feel so maladjusted and so unbalanced at times, like out of sync with God, clumsy in my approach toward people. But the Prince of Peace is at work in me. And he's bringing that wholeness. He's endowing it to me as a gift. It's a glorious way to live under his rule and to grow in this way. So taken all together, these four titles for the Son show us that he will endow astonishing wisdom. He will exercise omnipotent might. He will function as our leader, provider, protector forever. He will usher in and reign over a realm of peace. And so, when verse 7 rolls around, it's no surprise to us that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When we think about a nation increasing its reach, we don't usually associate that with 
you know, conflict disappearing or, or hostility going away. We, when governments want to spread their influence, usually tensions build, right? One of my missionary friends grew up in Taiwan, and he's regularly asked by Chinese people, you know, they, they kind of get tense with him and, and say, so then do you think Taiwan should not be reunified with China? And his response is just kind of an artful dodge. He says, what I really desire is that China would more and more become the sort of place that everyone wants to be a part of. And of course, the, the world has rarely seen a country like that. Or, or if it exists at all, it doesn't last for long. But a lasting one is coming. And everyone who has been freed from the oppression of sin is happy to be a part of that kingdom, to call it home. It's not a homeland that's based on the chest-thumping patriotism. It's based on objective purity, perfect justice and righteousness. And in saying that the son's rule will have no end, the implication is that eventually he's going to rule over everything. He's going to make everything new. And that's the grand vision of chapter 9. But how were those in Isaiah's day to believe it? When Ahaz was still on the throne of David? When Assyria was still growing in power? By faith, those generations had to look forward in time to the coming son of David. There's much less mystery for us. We know that his name is Jesus. We have record of his works and his teaching, verifying that this truly is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So where are we today? Where are we in this passage? Somewhere in verse 7. We're in the middle of the latter time, and, and still evil rulers are on thrones, and Still, the enemies of the good and the enemies of God seem to be growing more powerful. So by faith, we have to look forward in time to the second advent of our Lord. Do you live in that way? Do you live in the prophetic perfect tense? Do you have the resulting confidence and joy? Because there is no possibility that these words will not come to pass. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Zeal means great energy or enthusiasm in pursuing a cause. So the Lord of heavenly armies is passionately pursuing this end. It's his holy obsession. And that means that it can be your certain hope. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. King Ahaz's unbelief had led to gloomy desolation across the land. And really that's the story within a similar story of how King Adam's unbelief led to gloomy desolation across the land. That's a story in which each of us find ourselves. And each of us, as we demand lordship of our own lives, we have added to that desolation in some significant ways. I don't know what that anguish looks like in your own life, I don't know how much of it is because of your own unbelief, how much of it is just the byproduct of living in the gloomy land of desolation. I know what the anguish looks like in my life. And the good news is that a child being born, a son being given, really did start to peel back the darkness. It really did usher in 
the latter time. And a great light has appeared in the places where it was least expected. And because of that, warfare, exploitation, racism, rape, exile, abuse will soon be done forever as wholeness and health are restored and oppression and poverty and conflict and the tyranny of disease and arrogant leadership and broken families and corruption and injustice will be done with because the king is establishing a realm of righteousness and he will uphold it forevermore. And those in Christ are citizens of that kingdom. Even now, that kingdom is growing from the smallest of seeds into the largest of trees. So your sanity, your well-being, ultimately your salvation depend upon seeing this news and rejoicing because Jesus brings us the peace that we need. Let's pray. Father God, how can we thank you for, for sending this child, for giving us this son? Um, your plans are perfect, and we see that, and we see your great love for us and how freely you gave. And King Jesus, we welcome and we celebrate your liberation and your peace today. And some of us can hardly believe that it's true, and we're still living in, we're still living as if the darkness was the only reality. And so we ask for more of that light. Help us to see, to see you for what you really are. And some of us, or maybe even the same ones of us, we wince a bit because the light hurts our eyes. We don't like the idea of slavery, but we've grown comfortable in it. So we ask that you would so order our lives as to free us from the grip of the chains that have become normal for us. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would reveal to us the demeanor of our own hearts and conform our desires more and more to fit with the light and the joy of our new homeland. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.